I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. beginning the end it's a story but that's why i'm here to tell you stories so where to start this is a journey into sound brought to you in living color on wtdr it's happening i can feel it how would you explain it it's beautiful god it's god i say god how do you like that why it's preposterous thank you very much information in the form of energy streams in streams in simultaneously in the form of energy, and then it explodes into this enormous guest is Saloni Sharma. She's a medical doctor, licensed acupuncturist, and double board certified in pain management and rehabilitation medicine. She's the medical director and founder of the Orthopedic Integrative Health Center at Rothman Orthopedics and has treated thousands of patients. She's also co-chair of pain management and spine rehabilitation for the American Academy of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation and an award-winning clinical assistant professor at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital. And she's the author of a new book that we'll be talking about, The Pain Solution, Five Steps to Relieve and Prevent Back Pain, Muscle Pain, and Joint Pain Without Medication. So, Saloni, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tony. I'm so glad to be here, and I appreciate that kind introduction. Could you begin by talking about your own experience living with pain? Sure. So, actually, as a child, uh, I had scoliosis, which you may know is a curvature of the spine, and I had to wear a brace for a year. 
So that was my first exposure to orthopedic pain and dysfunction. Thankfully, the pain wasn't severe. I think the mental and emotional toll of that, you know, as a 12-year-old girl took some toll on me. And then more recently, in fact, last week, actually, I threw out my back. So um, I definitely had experiences with back pain. And it's really clear that it's not just a physical issue. You know, it affects your emotional state and your mental state as well and, and pretty much all activities you're trying to do throughout the day. Yeah, I had a major back injury about 35 years ago. And it's interesting, while I was reading your book, I had something very strange happen inside my lower back. It was something very different than I had ever experienced. And I gradually came to realize that it was my psoas. But the psoas is a very subtle sensation in the body. And my back didn't go out, but it felt like my whole lower back would seize up at any moment, just doing the slightest thing. So I was actually living in fear for a couple of days, for actually a few days while I was reading the book. I'm so sorry you went through that. Yeah, that is a very scary feeling. And I think sometimes the fear can take over. And initially, it's justified. You know, it's a normal human reaction to want to protect yourself from the pain. But that is really scary when your whole body seizes up, or you can't walk, or you can't bend, or you get stuck, bent over. There's really nothing that's comparable to it. And that's exactly what happened to me a week ago, about eight days ago, and I was leaving work, and I moved my work bag, and my whole back seized, and I had to drop my work bag to the floor in the parking garage, and it's a really scary thing, and if you never had it or you don't know what to do with it, it's really mind-blowing. Yeah, it creates a kind of a, a cloud of fear around everything you do. That's the worst part, I think, that it's so unpredictable, right? It's not that, you know, you were scrubbing the kitchen floor for five hours, and then you had back pain. That would almost be understandable. But if it's just little activities or things that one time you can do, they don't bother it, and the second time they trigger it, that's where the fear and the uncertainty comes into play. I think that's why having some tools to kind of lower whole body inflammation and center yourself a little bit can be helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, create a a kind of mindfulness around the whole issue. Exactly, and, and sort of not to run away with the fear. So the fear is a natural response, but not to let it take over and sort of run your life uh, for you and, and sort of have a little bit of control over it. And that's really what I'm hoping the book does and, and other tools that we may talk about today can help people with. Mm-hmm. So I would love to start by uh, what you learned about pain and treating pain in medical school and then move on to how you learned to treat pain the way you're currently doing it. Yes, that's a great topic because, unfortunately, a lot of people are not taught different ways to treat pain in medical school. We have rotations in medical school, and, you know, there's anatomy, and there's orthopedics, and there's chemistry, and, you know, there's dermatology, but there isn't really a pain block necessarily, and so it's an elective. Even within that, unfortunately, can be very medicalized and focused primarily on medications and surgery and injections. And I will be the first to say, I think that, you know, those treatments have a role in certain situations, but they're just not our only tools. And I think a lot of physicians and medical providers don't know about other tools, and that's why they can't offer it to people in pain. So I did start the traditional pathway, went to medical school, and then I did my residency in physical medicine rehabilitation. And that's kind of a smaller specialty. The goal of that specialty is helping people function. So people after they have strokes or spinal cord injuries or traumatic brain injuries 
or pain issues and help them get back to their daily life so they can function and be independent. So that's sort of where I started. Then I did a pain fellowship. And then after that, I sort of realized that there were a lot of things we couldn't offer people. You know, beyond medications and physical therapy, it's, what else is there? There has to be more. And that's when I went and got training in acupuncture as well as mindfulness and yoga. And more recently, I've done an integrated fellowship with Dr. Andrew Weil. So through that process, what did you learn about pain and how effective or perhaps were those approaches more effective to actually relieving pain? Because I think probably a lot of people who haven't had any experience with that would think, well, how can you relieve pain through things other than painkillers or other symptomatic interventions? That's a great point. So I think, you know, when you have acute pain, which means brand new pain that's severe and keeps you from walking and doing things, I think the typical interventions make sense, such as medications, perhaps physical therapy, maybe an injection, depending on, you know, what your physician, your healthcare provider recommends. But once you're sort of beyond that, you can sort of walk again, and you either have a nagging pain or you're concerned about reoccurring pain, that's when some of these other tools come into play. So when you're sort of out of that acute debilitating phase and you don't want it to come back or you want to minimize the chance of it coming back, I think that's when you look to more lifestyle medicine, integrative medicine type treatments. It's interesting, though, because traditional medicine that I was taught in residency in terms of pain, we're taught five ways to treat pain. And the first way is a healthy lifestyle. And what that means is everything that we're sort of talking about here and in the book, which is a healthy diet, so nutritious food, better sleep, a lot of movement that is tolerable, good relationships, and stress reduction. So that's the number one thing that we're taught to do. But unfortunately, if you're in acute pain or if your medical provider doesn't know other options, we usually skip over that and just jump to the other ones. So the first one is lifestyle modification, then physical therapy, then medications, then injections, then surgery, kind of in that hierarchy in stepwise fashion. But a lot of times we skip over the first one, lifestyle modification, because it's a slower process. But it's really like slow and steady wins the race with this. So if you can put in a little many bits of time and investment into this in the long term, that's what's going to help people. So one of the things that you talk about in the book are what you refer to as micro boosts. And again, it can be hard to imagine from the outside what little things like, give us some examples of micro boosts and how they can actually effectively relieve pain or help us with, let's say, like chronic pain, people with chronic conditions. Sure. So a micro boost is a small step that can add up to big relief over time. And to back up for a moment, someone maybe have a diagnosis of arthritis, for example, knee arthritis, and that means that there's some bony overgrowth in your knee joint, and there's less space there, and that can cause pain. So you can see it on x-ray that someone has knee arthritis, but it doesn't always cause them pain. So it's sometimes it's swollen and inflamed, and sometimes it's not. The arthritis is always there. So the concept is to reduce the inflammation, whole body inflammation, and periods of inflammation so you have less pain. And that's where the microboosts come in. It's doing little steps in our daily life to help reduce inflammation, which will then reduce the painful flares and the degree of pain. So to go back to your question, an example of a microboost, for example, is trying to get away from the standard American diet, which feeds inflammation and pain. And the standard American diet is defined as a diet sort of full of processed food, heavy on sugar and salts, heavy on saturated fat, and devoid of vegetables, fruits, and plant-based proteins. 
So if we can sort of take a step back from that, that can help reduce overall inflammation. And the concept of microboost is to do little things in your daily life that help with that. So for example, you could say, okay, I want to eat more vegetables and fruits because I understand that helps lower whole body inflammation. Well, that's a great thing to say. But if you don't have a concrete goal set up, then it's really not something that's going to happen. So a microboost in terms of changing or improving your diet could be every Thursday night, half my dinner plate is going to be filled with vegetables, right? So that's like a who, when, where, why kind of situation. So you know when you're going to do it, why you're doing it, and how you're going to do it. So you know how you're going to increase your vegetable intake by making a defined goal. And that's an example of a microboost. Now in the U.S., we tend to have terrible eating habits, but we also have pretty poor sleeping habits, which is another thing that you talk about, as well as exercise habits. Like many people, you know, their notion of exercise is walking from the couch in front of the TV to the kitchen. Yeah, so those are both important factors. Exercise it doesn't have to be in a gym. And I think that's what sort of happens with our culture too, is this all or nothing attitude. And you don't have to have a personal trainer and do all these expensive time consuming things to have more movement in your day. It could be as simple as taking two 10 minute walks a day, one in the morning and one at night around your neighborhood or city block. That can make a big difference. If you're, like you said, someone who just sort of goes from your couch to your TV and that's sort of your activity level. If you can do two 10 minute walks, maybe start at five minute walks, that can make a big difference over time in lowering inflammation. There's great studies that there's kind of a secret sauce that's released with exercise and the combination of endorphins, which are natural painkillers, as well as myokines, which are cell signals that are released when you contract muscles and they can help with inflammation. There's also an increased level of serotonin and that's what's used in antidepressants to help with mood. There's also activation of the endocannabinoid system, which is the natural marijuana system in the body. So there's many reasons that exercise, even little bursts throughout the day, can make a huge difference. So your approach is based on what you call the five pillars or the five R's of pain relief. How do they relate to what we've talked about so far, and how are they different? Yes, thank you for that. So the five pillars is called the Relief 5-R Plan. It refers to refuel revitalize, recharge, refresh, and relate. And what those are related to are food is refuel, revitalize is activity level or movement like we started to talk about, recharge is sleep, refresh is stress, and relate is supportive relationships. And so all of these factors help with the body's level of inflammation. And so optimizing these factors can reduce inflammation and then hopefully reduce pain and painful flare-ups. That's sort of the concept. And like you said, we've touched on food and movement somewhat. As you mentioned earlier, sleep is important as well. And there's something in the book that I coined, and it's called the 30-30 rule. And I actually recommend people don't look at screens for 30 minutes before bedtime and 30 minutes when they wake up in the morning. And there's a lot of data that not to look at screens for 90 minutes before bedtime, but for a lot of us, that's just not realistic, whether it's work obligations or personal reasons. So I think if you can even start with a 30-30 rule, which is 30 minutes before bedtime and 30 minutes after you wake up not to look at a screen, that can be beneficial for your sleep and stress level. Uh, you can also do breath work and gratitude practices. So there's a lot of different little micro boosts or changes you can make to sort of help reduce inflammation from that perspective. So there's a, a kind of a vicious cycle correlation between stress and inflammation and the experience of pain that's at the core of a lot of 
the pain issue, or at least chronic pain. That's certainly true. You know, stress really feeds inflammation, and there's lots of research on that that supports that. It's not even uh, hearsay anymore. There's a lot of data and evidence that shows that. There's a lot of data that mindfulness practices, even 10 to 15 minutes a day, can make a big impact and reduce whole body inflammation levels. And these have to be somewhat regular practices, so you can make it part of your routine. That can be helpful. In the book, I actually talk about taking adult time out, which is taking 10 to 15 minutes a day to do something that brings you into the moment and makes you present and mindful. And it doesn't have to be yoga mantras and chanting, you know, in in a very strict way. While there's great data for that, if that's not something that makes sense for your listeners, you know, it could be something as simple as doing an activity that brings you into your flow state. So it makes you mindful and present. For some people, it's cooking or drawing or writing or woodwork or knitting or even just closing your eyes and listening to music. It's a screen-free activity where you're present in the moment. You're not thinking about the past. You're not worrying about the future. You're just here and now. And that can be tremendously benefit to reduce stress and inflammation and therefore pain. And there's lots of new data coming out that stress is a major cause of inflammation. And then that inflammation in general itself is pretty much the cause of just about all disease in the body. That's true. There's a lot of data showing that for you know, for diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, stroke, definitely. So then the approach, the underlying approach to address the cause of all of this really is to reduce stress. That's correct. You're 100% right. So it's mental stress, emotional stress, and physical stress, all three. Mm-hmm. And so in the book, you spend a lot of time writing about lots of different approaches, micro-boosts, and, and other things to address stress reduction practices. And of course, stress reduction in our culture in this country goes against the current of our culture. Our culture is very competitive and stress-driven. People even brag about how stressed out they are about things or, or how little sleep they got or how difficult things are. And there's a kind of self-aggrandizing, heroic approach to stress and things like that. And so this whole approach to addressing stress, to address inflammation, to address pain, goes against our basic cultural inclinations. It really does, and it's so true, and it's so unfortunate that it is. this is a little bit of a counterculture approach. I mean, people are rewarded for pulling all-nighters, even students. You know, nurses work double shifts, truck drivers, you know, take on extra runs. I mean, everyone is rewarded, lawyers, physicians. I mean, the list is endless. You know, if you take on more and do more, that that's somehow impressive or should be rewarded. And what happens is it becomes focused on quantity instead of quality of work. And that's really where we're suffering. I mean, I see high schoolers who have back pain and neck pain, and they're on two or three antidepressants. And there's just all this stress on people that wasn't there before. And I think it's just unfortunately getting worse. So I think we have to stop and pause and say, you know, what are we trying to accomplish? And what's the best way? This really reminds me of something that I touched about in the book, too, which is this task or this idea of multitasking. You know, that's a computer term. Humans aren't designed for multitasking. Computers are. If we try to do two tasks at the same time, 
we can do it, but we're not doing them as well. And that's going to hurt us in the long run. So I think really realizing that being mindful and as many things as you can do is going to benefit the quality of your work is the best way to look at it. And a lot of what you talk about with these micro boosts and these new practices is based upon or requires creating new habits, new approaches to the way we live our lives. And of course, you talk about starting with small steps and gradually increasing that whole change of lifestyle. But changing of habit is very difficult. We tend to resist change, you know, on every front in every possible way we can. So what does it take? Does it does it require someone to be in such pain that they can no longer bear it and they're willing to try anything before they do that? Or or how receptive do you find people to uh, actually make change in their lives and to, to actually listen and apply your methods? I think it depends on where you are, you know, in your life and, and in your pain journey and in prioritizing what's important to you in general. So for me, I see people in a regular practice, you know, typical orthopedic practice, and we talk about back and neck pain and other muscle and joint pains, but I also, within that practice, have an integrated program, and people who come to that integrated program are there because they're prioritizing their health and they want to build a plan for a life with less inflammation and suffering, and those are 45-minute visits, and those people are ready to make the change. So I think you're right. You know, you have to be ready to make a change, but it doesn't have to be insurmountable, and, and that's really the point of the book is it's not changing your whole life. It's not getting a personal chef and personal trainer and spending thousands of dollars and thousands of hours. It's just making tiny little tweaks. And that's what I'm trying to do is make it accessible for people, especially in light of the opioid and pain crisis our country is going through. We're really crying out for we need help with pain. We need help with inflammation. And we need to make it easy and simple and accessible so everyone can do it. Eating a couple more vegetables a day, taking a 10 to 15 minute timeout break for yourself, an adult timeout. These are really easy things that hopefully most people can work into their day if they're trying to prioritize health and reduce inflammation and pain. And you talk about how people who have been experiencing chronic pain for a while have perhaps become very depressed about life and are living in despair and lack of hope. And you refer to it as a kind of sink mindset. And then you talk about cultivating a rise mindset. So how does one cultivate a, a rise mindset from within a sink mindset where they're actually experiencing despair and a lack of hope? That's a really hard to place to be in. And I think first off, definitely reach out to professional help if there's any thoughts of hurting yourself or hurting others. That's the number one thing I want to say is reach out to your physician or a therapist or someone else you trust to get some help if, if someone's sort of in a very low sink place. If it's more of an ongoing situation where you feel like you're suffering, you know, we talk about taking some steps back and thinking about where are these pain thoughts coming from and at what can I do to change them. And so there's an acronym I mentioned in the book called PAIN, and it's based off of a famous Buddhist acronym that is RAIN, which is for self-compassion. And PAIN is really about pausing and sort of acknowledging the feelings you're having about your pain and then investigating if there's something you can do to take action to change 
the outcome. So, for example, if you feel like I can never go out with my friends every time I go out with my friends, my back hurts and it just ruins my night. I don't even want to go. And sort of that sort of sink or heavy mindset takes over, then you can sort of go through the acronym and say, well, why do I feel like this? Well, I feel like this because it's always happened. So it's a pattern. It's okay. Well, what can I do? And, and before you even say, what can I do? It's acknowledge that you're having that feeling and realizing that I'm having this worry because this keeps happening and that's okay and that's normal. Because if you don't recognize your feelings, they sort of manifest themselves in other ways and sometimes that is more pain. So I think recognize it, acknowledge it, and then investigate what you can do and take action. So it might be wearing different shoes. It might be wearing a pain patch. It might be telling your friends, I don't want to go here. I want to go there. It might be sitting at a table closer to the door so you don't have to walk as much. It might be taking a heating pan with you. There's lots of tiny little tweaks you can do, but like you said, it's sort of getting out of that sink mindset and sort of a little hack, and I I don't love that term, but but sort of I think an easy way to communicate it. A little hack is taking a step back and realizing that the mind and body are one. So if you're feeling sort of low in terms of your mindset, then you might have to go to a physical activity to bring you up for a minute. So for example, if you're feeling down about your pain, you might have to go for a walk if you're able to. You might have to listen to some music that brings you up. You might have to sort of reset before you can address your mindset and be fully present with it. So I think it's it's a slow process, and it, it's sort of hacking away at it and taking little steps. The other piece of that is recognizing that you're not alone. So one in five Americans suffer from chronic pain. 85% of Americans will have back pain at some point. That's not even talking about muscle pain, joint pain, or neck pain. So I think the feeling of this only happens to me can be very detrimental. So focusing on, you know, other people go through this and recognizing that you've been through hard things before and that you've overcome them. And so you sort of have a history of resilience and that's something you can build on. I think that can be helpful. And sometimes it's a matter of reaching out to other people who you trust and who are supportive and asking for some support, you know, emotionally or otherwise. And I think that can be hard to do, but it's something we all need to do sometimes. And you also talk about relationships, having supportive relationships in our lives and the detrimental effect of having, quote unquote, toxic relationships. Could you talk about how relationships affect our stress and inflammation and experience of pain as well? Certainly. So I think the first thing to start with is thinking about what is the strongest form of punishment and that is isolation, right? So if someone is a prisoner and they're put in isolation, that's sort of the severest form of punishment that they can give someone, and there's a reason for that. We know that that affects us mentally and physically. It increases inflammation, increases stress, increases pain. Even just with the start of COVID, the pandemic, there's been studies that two weeks into it, people's rates of depression and even thoughts of harming themselves skyrocketed. So even just having some social distancing or separation by not going into work or the store had a huge impact on people. So we are very social beings. We need social connection, but positive social connection makes a big difference. So negative social connection obviously can be detrimental, but positive social connection can make a huge difference. And so it's sort of thinking about who your social support structure is and trying to interact with people who are positive as much as you can. The literature is actually really interesting because it talks about how helping other people and doing something called pro-social acts, which means helping another human being, actually benefits the person doing it more than the person receiving it in some cases. And it doesn't have to be, you know, volunteering at the food pantry every day. It can be little things like 
talking to a neighbor and listening to them talk about their kidney stones for five extra minutes. It can be holding the door open. It can be talking to a cashier. It can be tiny little moments or little bursts of social connection that can actually be really helpful in healing. There's a lot of good data about this. And that's very interesting. Could you talk about why that works? I think we're hardwired to be a tribe of people and, and to connect. You know, and it actually releases in the brain feel-good chemicals when you socially connect with someone. So I think that's why it's helpful. You feel good about yourself when you help another person, and you feel better about your contribution in the world. Even practices of gratitude, which I know are kind of been beat over the head with lately, but it's true, they make a big difference. Connecting with someone, even being thankful for what you already have can make a huge difference. You know, people are kind of done with hearing about their rights or things you're happy for at the end of the day because it's sort of been overstated many times, but there is power to that. I like something that I coined as a concrete three, which is to think about a person, place, or thing you're thankful for, especially if you're feeling sort of down or in that think mindset. And sort of having that noun version of it can be helpful. And it, again, it doesn't have to be super lofty and, you know, fancy kind of things. It, it could be, I'm thankful for the smell of the fresh cut grass that I walked by today on my walk to work. You know, I'm thankful for that ice cold lemonade I had. And I'm thankful for that coworker's joke that they told me. You know, it can be very little minor things in moments of your day where you sort of had a glimpse of joy or peace. And on the flip side of what makes us feel better or feel good, pain causes stress and chronic pain causes chronic stress. Could you talk about how stress and that kind of chronic stress affect the brain and then how that ripples out throughout our entire life? Sure. So stress raises inflammation levels in the body. So there's interleukins, there's a C-reactive protein. There's different ways to measure this, even in the blood levels of a really concrete measure, but it increases inflammation and actually kind of puts us on survival brain mode. So we sort of go back to our ancestral period and caveman period, even if you want to think of it that way, where we're kind of in the fight, flight, and freeze mode or survival mode. And so we're kind of on edge and we react to everything. And what happens in the brain is the more you do something, a certain pattern of thinking or behavior, the more it becomes reinforced. So it sort of becomes like a expressway to that response. So if you hear someone, you know, let's say a customer, you're talking to a customer on the phone and they keep complaining, the last three times you've had a customer like that complain, you know, it's blown up into a big thing. Now the fourth customer gets on the phone and you just go sort of to reaction instead of a thoughtful response. And you say, I'm not dealing with this today. And you just kind of cut the person off. And that's what happens is it kind of gets hardwired in our brain. So things kind of wire together. If you keep doing the same patterns of thoughts and behavior, that's going to wire in your brain. That's going to become your natural reaction. So what we want to do is be mindful about what we do and have a thoughtful response. So if we're always on stress, always on edge, we go back to our caveman, kind of reptile brain, we go to survival mode, and we actually burn bridges and you know don't actually help ourselves. And that can definitely ripple into a whole body effect of overall inflammation and kind of living on the edge. Which is all engaging of our sympathetic nervous system. And recently, there have been a lot of studies as well as books talking about how healing only occurs when our parasympathetic nervous system is activated. And I would love for you to talk about the dynamics physiologically in our bodies related to stress and pain in relation to 
the parasympathetic nervous system and the sympathetic nervous system and the relationship with healing, you know, healing the underlying cause of pain as a way of approaching pain. Yes, definitely. That's a really important issue to bring up. So the sympathetic, just to recap, is our fight, flight, or freeze system. And that's when we're sort of stressed out and on edge in survival mode. It's designed for if there's a lion or a fire or a robber, something like that, to protect yourself. And it's really designed for short bursts of activation. It's not something that's meant to be chronically on or activated. And the other side is the parasympathetic system, which triggers a relaxation response. And there's many ways to activate that. There can be breathing exercises. There can be mindfulness activities. There's several ways to sort of trigger that response as well. But what's happening, like we've talked about with our culture and society, is that we're sort of chronically activating the sympathetic system, the stress system. And that raises levels of inflammation, which, as we talked about earlier, leads to higher levels of pain and also inflammatory conditions like diabetes and heart disease. So we're always living on edge that we really can't heal. And so we want to activate that parasympathetic or relaxation response so we can focus on healing and getting better. We need to get out of survival mode and get into sort of a thriving mode. And that's what some of the relaxation techniques can do that are mentioned actually in the refresh chapter as well. And spending time with people who support you, having gratitude practices, pro-social acts, these can all help really take us back to that parasympathetic mode. It's interesting because talking about it from a whole body perspective, it even goes back into nutrition. And, you know, we talked about sort of healthy foods, but there's also this concept of circadian eating or intermittent fasting, but in congruence with day and light and night and dark cycles. So if we give our body time to heal and time to sort of do its daily cleaning, it does better. And that's really what you're talking about. If we're always processing food, then we don't have any time to digest it and to clean out dead cells, to get rid of waste. And so doing something like circadian eating or eating primarily during daylight hours, for example, you know, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. can be helpful because that gives us time to rest and digest. That's parasympathetic system. So if we can do 12 hours, for example, 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. of not and taking food, our body can focus on autophagy or cleaning up cell debris and making us healthier and healing. There's another fascinating thing. I've I've always been fascinated by the placebo effect and the nocebo effect and the implications of that. So I would love for you to talk about how those play into all of this because you do write about it in your book. Yes, they're really fascinating. And I th- think a lot of people haven't heard of the nocebo effect. The placebo effect is fairly well known. And that's when you're given a treatment that is thought to be not real. For example, we're talking about medications, a sugar pill, or a pill that really has nothing to it, and you feel better. So that's a placebo effect. It's a positive effect from a quote-unquote artificial treatment. And that really speaks to the mind-body connection. So if you think something's going to make you feel better, it has a higher chance of making you feel better. And that really bears out in the research, too. So if you are given a treatment and you're taking part of treatment, for example, if you're taking part of a yoga class or mindfulness class, and you come into the mindset as, this is going to help me get better, there's actually statistically a higher chance that it will help you get better. And that's really the power of the mind influencing the outcome. But there's also the nocebo effect, which unfortunately is stronger. So if you go into a treatment or a plan or an activity deciding ahead of time that this isn't going to be helpful, then there's an even stronger chance that it won't be helpful. 
So it's really fascinating what the mind can do and how it can affect the body and how we heal. So why is the nocebo effect so powerful? That's like a million-dollar question. There's some thoughts that it's because it's a survival instinct. So we want to do things that protect us and not walk into things just kind of blindly and gullibly. Oh, this is going to be great. I think it's going to be great. You know, we want to be kind of suspicious and careful. You know, something's not out to get us or harm us. So there's some thoughts, and that's why we're sort of hardwired like that. And it's also fascinating how the placebo effect has been studied even with surgery, because a lot of people can be skeptical of the placebo effect and and dismiss it. But there have been studies where people have received fake surgeries for conditions that have been widely believed can only be treated by specific surgeries. So they receive a little incision where the surgery would have taken place so that it shows a little scar that gives the person the psychological belief that the surgery actually happened. And very often, they actually receive the benefits as if they receive the actual surgery. So the placebo effect is also very powerful and is very real. It is. Isn't that amazing? So yeah, there's research where people have had some knee issues like ligament tears or partial tears and they've done the fake surgeries like you alluded to or they just make the incision but don't do anything surgically and those people do better. They, they come better, come out of it better and it, it's completely based on the placebo effect. So that means that there are powerful effects caused by our mindset and our beliefs about the reality that we think exists. Certainly, and it's, it's kind of mind-blowing because it's something that we're not really taught about in medical school or even just in, you know, sort of daily life, that our mindset can have such a huge impact on how we do. And I see that with patients. I'll see patients when I was working in the rehab hospital who unfortunately have breast cancer or other types of significant illness, and the ones who have a positive attitude always do better, you know, and I'm not saying it's 100% cure or anything like that but they always come out better than the people who have a negative outlook on it. So people who are naturally optimistic are more inclined to benefit from the placebo effect, whereas people who are pessimists tend to, well, benefit in the negative way from the nocebo effect, it sounds like. Yes, I think that'd be fairly accurate, but I do want to clarify. I think it's a learned thing. I think even by nature, I would say I'm a pessimist. And I, I think with effort, <laughs> you know, you can sort of trend yourself to the optimistic way or see moments of optimism here and there and work towards that. And some of that goes into other pieces of it, which is having a sense of purpose or that you're doing something bigger and you're contributing to society. That sort of helps feed a better mindset and also feeling like you belong in some way. So if you can facilitate those two things, I think it can help shift the mindset of, you know, Things can work out, maybe not exactly the way I thought, but they things can still work out. It's possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, chronic pain and experience of trauma can generate a lot of pessimism towards life. So from that perspective, it can take a lot of effort to change the course of, of that river, so to speak. For sure. And I think with situations like that, having a support group, People who have been through a similar situation, if possible, can be really helpful. And people who have 
you know, done well with it and people have maybe struggled but still are there fighting, I think that can be helpful. I think people who are at peace with it, seeing people like that. In the book, I talk about having a RISE mentor, which is someone who has that attitude of positivity or acceptance and non-judgment and tends to help people and sort of inspires us to grow and, and do better and heal. And I think having a sort of someone you can look up to or emulate can be really helpful if you're trying to move out of that difficult spot. And the experience of pain by itself is different than the kind of suffering that we can layer on top of it. Could you talk about the distinction between pain and suffering? Because I think for a lot of people, they find it very difficult or they don't know how to distinguish the two. Yes, that's a great point. So there's many ways to define it. The way I like to define it is pain is unpleasant physical sensations related to an injury or chronic condition. But suffering is a combination of the physical symptoms plus the emotional and mental burden. So it really translates to suffering is a change, a negative change in the way you see yourself or your planned life, the way you envision things are going to be. And the suffering is the part that we can impact and affect with some of the tools we're talking about today. Pain, unfortunately, is part of life. And there's an old adage that, you know, pain is part of life, but suffering is optional. And, and to some degree, that's true. There's you don't have to suffer. You don't have to add the emotional and mental layers onto the physical component of pain. So it's sort of like from our experience of pain, we can create stories on top of it that rationalize and justify and kind of perpetualize the maybe perhaps just the notion of pain, which then, because of the nature of the placebo effect through mindset, just creates more and more pain. Because I think one thing that, that I know that I've experienced, and I, and pretty much everybody I've spoken to, when we have painful experiences and when we feel stuck in them, it's really hard to imagine that we'll ever get out of it, that it will ever end. Exactly. It's the story we tell ourselves and getting stuck in that moment and sort of catastrophizing, deciding that this is going to be the rest of your life. That's where people really get stuck. And it's having some way or some person or support system or tool to pull yourself out of that mindset to say, no, this is how it is now, but it's not going to be like this forever. One, because this has happened to other people and they've overcome it. And two, because I've overcome other things, maybe not this exact pain in my life, and I've moved on from that and recovered, and I can do that here too. So I think you're 100% right. The stories we tell ourselves make a huge difference. And the people we see make a big impact too. I have a little sort of survey or questionnaire to take in the beginning of the book, and it does mention, you know, do you have people in your life with chronic pain? And so are you surrounded by, by people in chronic pain where you sort of adopt that story in your head that, oh, I'm going to be like Aunt Edna, you know, I'm going to have this pain, always just like her, when you've just had it for a week or a day or a month, you know, as opposed to seeing someone else who you may have not even remembered who has had the same pain but recovered in a week or two. You know, and so our mind, again, goes into that survival mode and sort of focuses on the, the negative aspect or the negative outcome and may repeat that story to ourselves. And again, it's a sort of like a protection thing back from our caveman days, and we have to break free from it and use our developed brain and our frontal lobes and everything to kind of come out of that and be more rational and step back from it. And you suggest asking ourselves certain types of questions like, is this response or thought helpful to the situation? 
Exactly. Yeah. One thing that I like to say a lot is, is it kind? And that can be, you know, to yourself, to something you're saying or doing for yourself. So is it kind to myself to stay up past midnight scrolling the internet instead of going to bed? Is that kind to me? Or is it kind to judge someone as a good or bad person based on one statement? And, you know, the next step is what you talked about. Is it helpful? Is this thought or story I'm telling myself helpful? Is this helping me move forward and get better? Or is this keeping me kind of in that sink mode? And then we can take another step, which is to actually ask, well, what might be helpful in this situation in place of what I'm currently doing or, you know, an old habit that I have? Yes, it's being able to step back for a minute and and ask that question. And that's the hard part. And so sometimes it is going for a walk, pausing, listening to a song you like, calling someone up on the phone, using a mindfulness app, doing a breathing exercise. It's sort of taking a pause and saying, okay, I'm going down a painful thought spiral. I need to reset. I can use the pain acronym. I can also think about things that tend to get me towards relief. And that can be like a mindfulness activity, a gratitude activity. It can be some of those pro-social or service acts we talked about. Another thing that could be really helpful is learning. So learning a new skill. It could be, you know, something like knitting from YouTube videos. It could be learning a new language. It could be just learning in a book. If someone is a big Civil War history buff, it's, you know, getting a library book or buying a book and reading some more about the Civil War. Those kinds of activities, especially mindfulness, gratitude, service, and learning, that's what helps get us out of that difficult mindset. So in the book, you share numerous examples of medication-free success stories. Could you pick a particularly dramatic success story to share with us? Sure. So one of my favorite ones is actually someone that I worked with, and he was a young man in his late 20s, and he was going to be a father soon. His wife was pregnant, and he had a history of chronic intermittent back pain, meaning he would throw his back out and be down and out for a couple weeks, and then it would get better, and this has been going on for years. And more recently, he'd thrown his back out while playing basketball, and he couldn't even stand up straight. He was really frustrated. He was really concerned that he wasn't going to be the kind of dad he wanted to be, and he just didn't know what to do. And so he went the regular route, which I always recommend, you know, checked in with his physician. He got x-rays to make sure there was nothing dangerous going on. He even eventually got an MRI and was diagnosed with a disc herniation, which is in between the bones. There are discs that are shock absorbers. Sometimes they can blow out of place or they can tear, and they can even touch a nerve. And all those things can cause pain. In his case, it wasn't touching a nerve. It was just kind of out of place. And there wasn't a lot to do. And someone talked to him about the effects of inflammation and diet. And then I kind of piggybacked on that with him. And we really talked about how certain foods can trigger inflammation, which causes more pain. So just like with the knee example, the disc herniation is there. But it's not always inflamed, which is why his pain and activity level fluctuate. So he was sort of known as the human garbage disposal. He could eat whatever he wanted, not gain any weight. So he did that. He basically ate everything and anything. And he decided to go not just to a plant-based trending diet. He went vegan. And he went vegan for a week and a half, and his pain went down by 80%. At the end of the month, he had no pain. He returned to basketball and was good to go. This is three years later. He's still vegan. His wife's vegan. He drinks alcohol on occasion because he actually stopped drinking alcohol for a period too. And he has no desire to go back. He just feels great and he doesn't have any back pain. Yeah, it's interesting how foods can cause inflammation, which, of course, aggravate pain or create pain. 
Yeah, it's not something we typically think about. It's not like you go to the orthopedist and they give you a prescription for, you know, healthier food and stress reduction, right? But what's funny about that is a nationally recognized and very reputable academy, the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, actually recommends on their website as a surgical toolkit, so preparing for surgery to improve nutrition, sleep quality, and stress to improve the outcomes of surgery and to improve healing, orthopedic healing. So this stuff is out there. It's just something that, for whatever reason, keeps getting glossed over. And I think some of the reason is because it takes a little more time to talk about and talk about the nuances like we are today of how it works and why it works. And it takes some effort. It's not really like a passive thing. You know, each person has to contribute a little bit, but in the long run, it's well worth it. And one thing I realized while reading your book is that everything in this book can really be applied to any chronic challenge in our lives. That's really true. It's addressing pain, but it's really about all over and in general inflammation and stressors. So yeah, it can really be applied to anything. And that's why part of the, the title says preventing too. You know, it's not just for people who are suffering with a lot of pain. It's if you want to reduce the amount of severe pain bouts or suffering. That's where this can be helpful. And this can also help with diabetes and high blood pressure and heart disease and, and improving something called health span. So health span is the number of years lived that are healthy. So we all want, you know, a long lifespan. And let's say a long lifespan, for example, let's just say take a number, it's 80 years. But if for 40 of those years, you're burdened by heart disease, poorly controlled diabetes, obesity, and you really don't have a good quality of life, and that's a poor health span. So we really want a long lifespan, number of years, also a long health span, number of years lived healthy. And that's what the tools in this book can really help with. But my sense is also that it, it can help with emotional stress and emotional pain, as well as things like depression and things like that as well. Because it seems like all of the things that you're recommending literally apply across the board. I agree. Yes. A lot of them are based on lifestyle medicine, which is just a whole different approach to physical, mental, and emotional health. So yes, I do think it could definitely help with those conditions as well, you know, mental and emotional stressors and conditions as well. And we were talking about our nervous system, the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. And you also talk about how we influence each other's nervous systems just by being present with them, which is something that is also counterintuitive in our culture, that there's that kind of deep physiological communication between people on an unconscious level that has a profound effect on our experience of everything. And in this case, particularly stress and pain, or on the flip side, relaxation and joy. So true. You know, the people you're surrounded with have a big impact. And, you know, they don't have to always be talking about pain or inflammation. They don't always have to be talking about joy and gratitude. But if they're living their lives that way and you're seeing that and absorbing that and interacting with them in that space and energy, it definitely impacts each of us physically, mentally, and emotionally. Yeah, it's a kind of entrainment that occurs on a subterranean level. It is. And, you know, I don't want to get too much out of my realm of expertise, but I mean, you know, talking about energies and things like that, there is something to that. And you also do acupuncture. So you do have an understanding of the way energy works in the body. 
They do, yes. Yeah. So I was trained in acupuncture, and so the concept of chi and energy motion is central to that. I also grew up as a Hindu, so a lot of thoughts about yoga and mindfulness and how that impacts energy, as well as chakras and Reiki and different thoughts about energy. So a lot of the experience of pain and chronic stress come from blockages of energy in the body, which are quasi-physiological at the very least. Yes, they are. And I think, you know, in modern medicine, we don't have a great way to explain it. Even acupuncture, for example, you know, they'll do PET scans of people's brains and do functional MRIs, and they'll do different scans where they can see that the pain pathway and pain controlling areas light up when we do acupuncture, but they can't explain the how. And that's what's so fascinating. So there's sort of this gap, and no one wants to call it energy and energy transfer and energy blockage in medicine, but there's something we're missing, but we can see it exists, but we, we can't quite put our finger on it. Mm-hmm. And there's another correlation that we haven't touched on, and that is the connection between pain and stress and weight gain, because there's a lot of that occurring in our culture, and it's another kind of vicious cycle that tends to occur in this area. It does, and it's a shame. I mean, there's big food industries that actually try to calculate something called a bliss point. It's like the exact ratio of salt, sugar, and fat that give you that dopamine hit or that reward in your brain so that you'll keep eating more and more of this processed food. So if you're feeling down, you're feeling low, there's a reason you go for quote-unquote comfort food, which may be fried food or chips or baked goods, because it gives you that reward. It gives you a few moments or a short period of feeling good. And so you go for it. But then unfortunately, with these processed foods, it causes more inflammation. And like you said, weight gain. And unfortunately, fat is not inert. You know, it's very active. It actually pumps out inflammatory cytokines. And so it contributes to more inflammation and more pain. So it is definitely a cycle. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. So, you know, there's different kinds of fat and inflammation, but visceral fat, so abdominal fat, which is notorious (laughs) in our culture, causes the most inflammation and puts out the most inflammatory cytokines. But the bummer is, like we started to talk about, the food industry really pushes these processed foods, and there's all kinds of additives and chemicals in there, so they have a longer shelf life. And this is what really hurts us, because this causes more inflammation, and then it gives us more pain. So it can be a tricky balance on sort of wanting to feel better, but not rely on these shortcuts, which actually hurt us in the long term. And things like we're talking about today, like breathing exercises, mindfulness, mindset work, different kinds of foods, improving sleep having better relationships, these aren't things that get Super Bowl ads, right? There's no full magazine spread about make sure you do your breath work today, right? So, But there are full magazine spreads about chips and cookies and crackers and and like all these other kinds of processed foods that just make it worse. (laughs) Yeah, I I was just thinking about that before you said that, that advertising is full of these tantalizing advertisements for foods that that are the opposite of what we want if we want to promote well-being or to recover from chronic pain and chronic stress and depression and emotional mood swings and things like that. They're literally feeding our dependency. I mean, they're, they're honing into, you know, maybe some periods in our life or times of weakness and really taking advantage of it. It's, it's actually, you know, disgusting, you know, what's happening 
and there used to be an ad for potato chips. It's, I bet you can't eat just one. And, you know, the truth is you can't because they have the bliss point. They have the chemical set. So you can't just have one chip. There was another study that was done. I believe it was called the Sonic Chip Study where they measured the crispiness of a potato chip. And they found the crispier it was, you know, the more satisfaction or more of a reward you got in your brain. And the reason being is they were simulating like a crisp apple. And so your brain thinks you're getting a crisp apple, but instead you're getting a crispy chip. And you're getting that same dopamine reward that was designed for healthy food with not healthy food. And so you keep going after it. And it's, it's almost like an addiction, you know, it's not your own fault. You know, it was something where you become dependent or addicted to something without even realizing that it was dangerous. Mm-hmm. And comfort food can be wonderful once in a while and not become addicted to it, as you say, and make it a centerpiece of our life. That's true. I, 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 I like chocolate. You know, I'm a human being, and we all like our treats, and, and things in moderation are fine. It's just that can't be the mainstay of your input. You know, food programs you for health or illness, and, it, and it's really up to you on, on how you program your body. And that's the same for stress and sleep. You know, you can either program yourself on more inflammation and pain or less. So if we can focus on not making processed foods and unhealthy things our mainstay of our diet, then we can do better, but still have treats and comfort foods and family traditions and do all that in moderation. That's fine. So your approach to pain and pain relief sounds very sane, very balanced, nothing outlandish, and that there's nothing really magical about it at all. And it's something that that's actually within reach of all of us if we're willing to take the steps to get there. Thank you. I love the way you said that. Almost surprised. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I, I think it is a sane approach. I think it's doable. And, and that's the whole point is that I don't think there's any other resource like this out there. I don't even think there's too many resources about the connection of pain and food. Forget about pain, food, sleep, stress, relationships, and activity. You know, there's so many little things we can do that are just so easy. And they're not onerous. They don't take a lot of time and money. And they can make a big impact over time. So do you have a website with more information about this? Yes. My website is Saloni Sharma. That's S-A-L-O-N-I-S-H-A-R-M-A-M-D. So SaloniSharmaMD.com. And then I have blog posts with more resources. I have information about the book. I'm also at Instagram at SaloniSharmaMD. And I post pretty much daily if people are looking for information or kind of pick me up. That's pretty much every day. So I imagine that you're also continually learning more and more about ways to address pain and to help people deal with these kind of issues. Yes, I try to stay up on the cutting research, also looking into new projects and experiences day-to-day in the office with people too and seeing what works for people on a case-by-case basis in addition to following up with the research. So is there anything that you would like to leave us with before we go? I think it's what you touched on before is that that this is a sane approach. It's doable. It's possible. It's little tiny steps, little micro boosts that can make a big difference and that we have the power to feel better and we don't have to be dependent on other people or situations or even pills in some cases. And there was a role for medication in certain cases, but that's not the only thing. There's other ways to enhance and optimize our healthcare and to live better. So then it sounds like there's actually hope for people who are suffering from chronic pain. Yes, that's actually the number one quote that I get from the integrative program that I run. 
is that Dr. Sharma gave me hope. That word comes up over and over and over again. Hope for a better future, hope that things are possible. I see a lot of people have had both their knees and both their hips replaced or two back surgeries, and they just don't want to go through that again. And they've been told perhaps by other people that, you know, there's nothing else to offer. There's no more surgeries for you, so I don't know what to do with you. And that's what, you know, we give people is, is hope. And it's, it's not just esoteric hope. It's concrete hope with action steps. And it's also based on actual experience that people have as they take steps, you know, along the path of pain relief. So they can actually see results unfolding as they integrate the principles of your work in their lives. Exactly. It's based on what we've seen with patients. I've seen in the research. It's all evidence-based and it's all doable and it's possible. And, you know, it might be two steps forward, one step back, but overall it's moving forward and getting better. So does this work for people? Well, when you talk about chronic pain, obviously there are different degrees of that, but people who experience terrible, debilitating pain, does this work for that as well? It can work for them. And I think it goes back to what we started talking about, which is the mindset and, you know, sort of, I don't want to say just the placebo effect, but sort of the positive mindset and the openness to, I believe this can help me. I believe I deserve to feel better. I believe I can feel better. And I believe these things will help me. I think that's who it can help. If you sort of have that willingness or openness to getting better, then yes, I do think it can help. Hmm. Well, I greatly appreciate you being on the show to talk about this because you know, as everybody gets older, we're all going to be experiencing some degree of these issues and pain. So I think this is a very valuable book and very valuable work that you're doing. Thank you so much, Tony. I really just hope it helps people and gets the word out there because you're right, we're all going to experience pain and it's, it's more a matter of how we deal with it and we have the tools to recover as quickly and smoothly as possible. So thank you so much. And thank you for being on the show. It's been great to talk with you. You too. I really appreciate it. And be well. You too. Be well to you and all your listeners. My guest has been Saloni Sharma. She's a medical doctor, licensed acupuncturist. She's double board certified in pain management and rehabilitation medicine. She's treated thousands of patients. She's also co-chair of Pain Management and Spine Rehabilitation for the American Academy of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, and an award-winning clinical assistant professor at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital. And she's the author of The Pain Solution, Five Steps to Relieve and Prevent Back Pain, Muscle Pain, and Joint Pain Without Medication. Now, let's go back in time. It's 1974, there is the gallery somewhere in the world, and there is a young girl, age 23, standing in the middle of the space. In the front of her is a table. On the table, there are 76 objects for pleasure and for pain. Some of objects are glass of water, a coat, a shoe, a rose, but also the knife, the razor blade, the hammer, and the pistol with one bullet. 
There is instructions which says, I'm an object, you can use everything on the table on me. I'm taking all responsibility, even killing me. And the time is six hours. The beginning of this performance was easy. People will give me a glass of water to drink, they give me rose. But after very soon, there was a man take the scissor and cut my clothes. And then they will take the thorns of the rose and stick in my stomach. Somebody take a razor blade and cut my neck and drink the blood. And I still have the scarf. The women will tell the men what to do. And the men didn't rape me because it was just a normal opening and it was art public and they're with their wives. They carry me around and put on the table and put a knife between my legs. And somebody took the pistol and put the bullet and put against my temple. And another person take the pistol and they start fight. And after six hours was finished, I uh, start walking towards the public. I was a mess. I was half naked, I was full of blood and tears was running in my face. And everybody escaped. They just ran away. They could not confront myself with myself as a normal human being. And then what happened is I went to the hotel. It was at two in the morning. And uh, I looked myself in the mirror and I had a gray hair. Welcome to the performance world. First of all, let's explain what is the performance. So many artists, so many different explanations, but my explanation of performance is very simple. Performance is mental and physical construction that performer make in a specific time, in a space, in the front of audience, and then energy dialogue happen. The audience and the performer make the piece together. And the difference between performance and theater is huge. In the theater, the knife is not a knife, and the blood is just ketchup. In the performance, the blood is the material, and the razor blade or knife is the tool. It's all about being there in the real time, and you can't rehearse performance because you can't do many of these times things twice, ever. Which is very important in the performance is, you know, all the human beings are always afraid for very simple things. We are afraid of suffering, we are afraid of pain, we are afraid of mortality. So what I'm doing, I'm staging this kind of fears in the front of audience. I'm using your energy. And with this energy, I can go and push my body as far as I can. And then I liberate myself from these fears. And I'm your mirror. If I can do this for myself, you can do for you. After Belgrade, where I was born, I went to Amsterdam. And you know, I've been doing performances since last 40 years. And here I met Ulai. And he was the person I actually fall in love. And we made for 12 years performance together. You know, the knife and the pistols and the bullets I exchange into love and trust. So to do this kind of work, you have to trust person completely. 
because this arrow is pointing my heart. So, heart is beating and adrenaline is rushing and so on. It's about trust. It's about total trust to another human being. Our relationship was 12 years and we work on so many subjects about male and female energy and as every relation comes to an end, ours went too. We didn't make phone calls like a normal human being do and say, you know, this is over. We walked Great Wall of China to say goodbye. I start from the Yellow Sea and he start from the Gobi Desert. We walk each of us three months, two and a half thousand kilometers. It was the mountains, it was difficult, it was climbing, it was ruins, it was, you know, going through the 12 Chinese provinces. This was before China was open in 87. And we succeed to meet in the middle to say goodbye. And then our relation stopped. And now I completely changed the way how I see the public. And one very important piece I made in those days, it was Balkan Baroque. And this was the time of the Balkan Wars. And I wanted to create some very strong charismatic image, something that can serve for any war, any time, because Balkan War now is finished, but there's always some war somewhere. So here I'm washing two and a half thousand big, big cow bloody bones. You can't wash the blood. You never can wash shame of the wars. So I'm washing these six hours, six days, and worms are coming on these bones and becoming possible, an unbearable smell. But then something stays in the memory. I want to show you the one who really changed my life. And this was the performance in MoMA, which just recently I made. This performance, when I say to the curator, I would just going to sit at the chair and uh, there will be empty chair in the front and anybody from the public can come and sit as long as they want. The curator said to me, that's ridiculous, you know, this is New York, this chair will be empty, nobody have time to sit in the front of you. But I sit three months and I sit every day eight hours, the opening of the museum and 10 hours on Friday when the museum is open 10 hours and I never move and I remove the table and I'm still sitting and this change everything. This performance, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, will nothing happen. But the need of people to actually experience something different. The public was not anymore the group. Relation was one-to-one. -one. I was watching these people. They would come and sit in front of me, but they have to wait for an hours, hours and hours to get to this position. And finally, they sit. And what happened? They are observed by other people, they are photographed, they are filmed by the camera, they are observed by me, and they are nowhere to escape except in themselves. And that makes a difference. There was so much pain and loneliness, there's so much incredible things when you look in somebody else's eyes, because in the gaze, without total stranger, that you never even say one word, everything happened. And uh, I understood when I stood up from that chair after three months, I'm not the same anymore. And I understood that I have a very strong mission, that I have to communicate this experience to everybody. And this is how, for me, was born the idea to have institute of immaterial performing arts. Because thinking about immateriality, performance is time-based art. It's not like a painting. You have the painting on the wall and next day is there. Performance, if you are missing it, you, you only have the memory or, or the story of somebody else telling you, but you actually miss all things. So you have to be there. 
And in my point, if you talk about immaterial art, music is the highest, absolutely highest art of all, because it's the most immaterial. And then after this is performance, and then everything else. It's my subjective way. This institute is going to happen in Hudson, upstate New York. And we are trying to build with Rem Kohlhaus' idea. And it's very simple. If you want to get experience, you have to give me your time. You have to sign the contract before you enter the building that you will spend there full six hours. You have to give me your word of honor. It's something so old-fashioned. But if you don't respect your own word of honor and you leave before, that's not my problem. But it's six hours, the, the experience. And then, after you finish, you get certificate of accomplishment. So, get home and frame it if you want. <laughs> this is orientation hall. The public come in, and the first thing you have to do is to dress lab coats. It's this importance of stepping from being just a viewer into experimenter. And then you go to the you to lockers and you put your watch, your iPhone, your iPad, your computer, and everything digital and electronic. And you are getting free time for yourself for the first time. Because there's nothing wrong with technology. It's wrong our approach to technology. We are losing every time we have for ourselves. This is the institute to actually give you back this time. So what you do here, first you start slow walking. You start slowing down. You're going back to simplicity. After slowing walking, you're going to learn how to drink water. Very simple. Drinking water for maybe half an hour. After this, you're going to the magnet chamber, which you're going to create some magnet streams on your body. Then after this, you go to crystal chamber. After crystal chamber, you go to eye-gazing chamber. After eye-gazing chamber, you go to chamber that you are lying down. So it's the three basic positions of human body, sitting, standing, lying, and slow walking. And then the sound chamber. And then after you saw all this and prepare yourself mentally and physically, then you are ready to see something long durational, like, like in, in immaterial art. Can be music, can be opera, can be theater piece, can be film, can be video, dance. You go to the long durational chairs because now you're comfortable. And in long durational chairs, you're transported to the big place where you're going to see the, the work. And if you fall asleep, which is very possible because it's been a long day, you're going to the, transport it to the parking lot. <laughs> and, you know, sleeping is very important. In sleeping, you're still receiving art. So in the parking lot, you stay for a certain amount of time. And then after this, you just, you know, go back and see more of the things you like to see or go home with your own certificate. So this institute is, right now is virtual. Right now I am just making my institute in Brazil, then it's going to be in Australia, then it's coming to here, to, to Canada and everywhere. And this is to experience kind of simple method, how you go back to simplicity in your own life. Counting rice will be another thing. The, you know, if you can't rise, you can't make life too. How to count rise six hours? It's incredibly important. You know, you go through this whole range of being bored, being angry, being completely frustrated, not can't finish the amount of rice you're counting, and then this unbelievable amount of peace you're getting with satisfying work is finished, or counting sand in the desert, or having the sound isolated situation, that you have headphones that you don't hear anything, and you're just there together without sound, with the people experiencing silence just a simple silence. We are always doing things we like in our life. And this is why we are not changing. 
we do things in life. It's just nothing happened if you always do things the same way. But what my method is to do things I'm afraid of, the things I fear, the things I don't know, to go to territory that nobody ever been. And then also to include the failure. I think failure is important because if you go, if you experiment, you can fail. If you don't go into that area and you don't fail, you are actually repeating yourself over and over again. And I think that the human being right now needs a change. And the only change to be made is a personal level change. You have to make a change on yourself because the only way to change consciousness and to change the world around us is to start with yourself. It's so easy to criticize how it's different the things in the world and they're not right. And this, the governments are corrupted and there's hunger in the world and wars and killing. But what we do on the personal level, what is our contribution to this whole thing? Thank you. Um, our next question is by Marina Abramovic <gasps> in New York. I was just speaking about her today. I am obsessed with this woman. She is so incredible. Her question for you is, it's quite abstract, um, who creates limits? We do. We create our own limits. She is a limitless human being. She is so incredible. She, I went to go see her exhibit at MoMA. She is such an incredible piece of art in, her, in herself. She, mm. And she is limitless. She is limitless in every way that I can even, in my limit, Raiden brain that, that I do not possess the limitless brain that she does. I, I look at her and she is She is so free She when she when she, she's sitting right now for like three months and mama all day long and she's just in a state of Nothing of freedom and to be able to do that you have to be limitless and you for yourself she did this one piece that i think is the most powerful and it's it's when you are around someone like a marina that you as myself a self-proclaimed mm. pop performance artist want to go home and slip my wrists and and i you know i am nothing i have achieved no sense of art uh, she is she is so boundless and she did a piece i think it was in germany and she laid on a table and she put out all of these things a, a gun condoms sleeping pills what you know booze ropes all sorts of things on this table and there was a sign basically that just said that the the museum goers could do as they pleased to her and they were not responsible for anything that happened, that she would take full responsibility for anything that happened. Somebody tried to shoot her in the head and then another patron came by and stopped them. Somebody tried to, you know, f her and somebody came by and stopped them and they gave her sleeping pills and they ripped her shirt open and they cut her hair and, and she was limitless. And she created her own sense of limitless being. And I think we are the ones who create our limits. And I hope to God that when she hears that answer, mm -hmm. she thinks I answered properly because Marina, I think you are so wonderful, so beautiful and inspiring. And, and as a woman, I am, I am in your... You're a big fan. I'm a big fan. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I, as a woman, want to translate what her work means into my own life on a domestic level 
Because well, I think doing something like that, the idea of giving yourself to other people and almost relying on them to... I think it's interesting that someone tried to do something to her and then somebody else stopped them, the idea of... I, I don't know if she thinks about, mm. you know, whether or not she is going, you know, uh, if she's going to die or live. I think she this allows her her mind to be limitless, and in another way, she trusts in her own art. Mm. That's what I. She trusts her own, her own. She trusts her own work. That's what I I take from it. I looked at all the items on the table at the moment and I said, this bitch trusts her own self. That's an amazing she's not terrified her. by... She's the most scary thing. We are our most terrifying monster. And she's not scared of herself. Or maybe... I, I could talk for three hours about <laughs> Marina, so... I love you, Marina. Thanks for your wonderful question. And notice how simple her question was. Yeah. Right, because she's f***ing free. <laughs>